Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but next week is Easter. Okay? So you, you can go get your pastel shirts and, uh, you know, all your uh, peanut butter bunnies and your peeps and uh, give them all ready for Easter egg hunts. Um, but with Easter being next week, I'd like you to pull this out of your program. It's an Easter invite. Now, we had a little confusion. I know you guys are much smarter than the first celebration people. They thought this was their invitation to come. Well, we're assuming that you're already coming, okay? So what this invitation is for is for someone else, like a co-worker, a neighbor, a family member, a friend, somebody that you can invite to come. Now, I read some statistics this week that 60% of all people will say yes to actually coming if you will invite them, okay? So invite them and they will come. Now, when you invite them, though, don't expect them just to find their maze and the way to get here. Actually meet them at the lobby or say, hey, we'll meet you outside out front. And then you can take them and get them some coffee or a drink or uh, a donut and then bring them into this place. Now, this is what's really cool, too. We want to encourage you to bring uh, anyone, but we want to encourage you to invite especially young families with kids because at JAR Kids, all of the kids that choose to will get a picture with the Easter bunny. Okay. The Easter bunny is going to be here. We're going to take pictures. We'll send that. You won't have to go to the mall and spend an outrageous amount of money for a not so good picture. Okay. So if you can do that, that would be great. And with that, then, uh, also if you want to get your picture taken with me, It'll cost $5.99, okay? So if you want to come up here next week, uh, $5.99, that's, that's for me. Now, the second thing is, uh, if you invite someone, uh, you don't have to do this. But if you don't invite someone, we'd encourage you next week to think about coming to the 9 o'clock celebration. And the reason is, is because uh, it's going to be packed full. And so as many people as we can get to come to the 9 o'clock will be great to leave uh, room uh, for other people. So think about that. But if you're inviting someone, by all means, just come and uh, bring them here. Now, next Saturday, we're actually going to set up before Easter because we've realized that when we wait until Sunday morning, uh, it doesn't work out as well. And so we would invite you uh, to come, if you can, at 6 o'clock. Uh, it probably will be about an hour, so from 6 to 7. And if you come here, uh, we can get everything set up and ready to go. And if you can't do that, if you could just come a little bit early uh, on this celebration, you don't have to sign up for this, but if you can be in the hallways welcoming people, don't be around the doorway because that gets clogged every day. But down the hallways or anyone that goes outside, like in the parking area, and you're greeting people, just saying, hey, we're glad you're here, welcome. Uh, we will try to get some ice cream for those people, okay? So we want this place to be the most welcoming uh, environment that we can, as we know some people will come uh, only uh, for Easter. Well, here is the last thing, 
And if you're volunteering next week, we have a special parking lot just for you. Now, sometimes when people think of attorneys, they don't have a very good uh, impression about them. But we have a good relationship with uh, Defer Voren Law, who is allowing us to use their parking lot. And the way that you'll do this is if you come down Walnut Street, once you pass the big building with their name on it, the first entry there up to the top left corner of the screen is a parking lot. And they've allowed us to actually use that for all of our volunteers. So if you can park there, uh, that will help out with our parking uh, next Sunday uh, as well. So are you up for the challenge? That sounds a little weak. Hopefully it'll get better. Okay, so we'll go. All right, well, let's pray and we'll jump right in. Well, God, we thank you so much for your love. And we thank you for each person who's here this morning. It's not by coincidence that they're here today, but you have brought them. And we pray, God, that for each person here, you would help them this week to invite one person on Easter. That you'd fire us up to do our best inviting. And that you'd help us to be the boldest that we can be. So that on Easter Sunday, we would see many lives transformed by your resurrection power. Give us faith, God, and give us energy to walk across cul-de-sacs, to walk across the street, to walk down the office hallway, across the factory floor, to invite people, and to trust that you're going to transform their life. God, I ask now that your Holy Spirit that has already been here before we came, that it would connect with each of our hearts in such a way that as we teach about and as we look at Jesus' last week of his life, we can apply those learnings to our lives. So Holy Spirit, come and touch and change the lives of people in this gym so that your name would be made great. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday. And what happened the final week of Jesus' life is historic. The final week of his life is a week to remember. And so I sent Mikey and Derek out on a little fact-finding tour to Ball State University to see how many college students would tell us that if they only had one week to live, what would they tell the world and what would they say to their family and friends? So let's take a look. Probably be. I tell my friends and family, like, I'm gonna go do everything on my bucket list. So I'm, you know, travel, you know, travel as much as I can, 
probably spend all my money because let's be honest, I don't have any use for it after I'm dead. So um, I guess if I had one week to live, I'd just make sure they knew how much I love them. I guess that's, that's really what's important. Uh, I'd probably um, tell everybody that has ever been close to me that I care about them, and uh, make sure they know that. I know they're literally clutching. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and then I, you know, I just probably live like I normally do. You know, like. I wouldn't want it to be like, oh, like I'm finally gonna die, so here we go. Like, like I don't know. <laughs> um, if I had one week left to live, I would tell my family that I love them and I try to hang out with them as much as possible and fulfill that last week with them as much as I could. Uh, I'd invite him to come travel the world with me if that was an option. Uh, definitely like play like shows and music. I don't know. If I had one week to live. I would go and take my family out, spend all my money, do whatever, um, and then tell them that I love them and spend my last month with them. Oh, um, maybe a spa week. I've never done one. And, I mean, I deserve to treat myself if I've only got a week. So, uh, what would you do? And I'd probably I'd invite other people to come because why not? I imagine two spa weeks are a blast. I love college students. A spa week, like your last week. That's why I just want to spend it in a spa, you know. Um, well, today I want to talk about what is the most sacred week in all of Christendom. The week between Palm Sunday, which is today, and Easter. And what we want to look at is this week that is historically called Holy Week. Now, if you would, I'd like you uh, to pull out your little teaching insert. Now, I know some of you don't like to do this. You don't like to fill in blanks. Some of you are like, I'm not going to do it just because someone else told me. Um, But this week, I really want to encourage you to do so because there's going to be a plan, a reading plan for you to be connected each day this week. Because sometimes what I've found is that people will come to church on Palm Sunday and then they don't do too much to like get to the cross until Easter and then Easter's all happy. And so I think for us to really be able to grow deeper, it would be beneficial if you could do this. So if you could pull this out and if no other reason, just humor me. okay? and uh, we'll uh, we'll begin. Uh, The first thing that I've learned when it comes to this whole idea of Holy Week is that if you really want the week to be impactful, that preparation shapes celebration. That the way that we prepare will shape how we celebrate on Easter. I was thinking about uh, the fact that I've run the mini marathon a few times. And uh, I've run with people who don't prepare very much. And then when it comes to crossing the finish line and you think they're going to celebrate, they're not because they're like dead. They're dying. They didn't prepare very well. And I've seen other people who prepare during that whole time and they get to the, to the finish line and their hands are up and they sense such a celebration because they prepared well. And what I want us to do is to be able to prepare well this week so that when Easter comes, it can be a greater meaningful experience than Easter has ever been maybe in your life. And what we're asking people to do is that connected to each of the days in the fill-in-blank is just a scripture. 
Uh, the first one there says Matthew 21, 1 to 11. I read it this morning. I'd encourage you to read it today. It'll only take you five minutes or less to read it, but then to take a couple more minutes and maybe 10 to 15 minutes where you, you sit in a chair and you read and you pray and you listen and you try to hear what God's calling you to do. And so that's what we want to try to encourage you to do this week. And we're going to give you exactly the different pieces of each day. Now, the first day is uh, Palm Sunday. This was kind of the triumph entry. We spent a lot of time last week. So we're going to look at an overview of this week. And we're not going to spend a lot of time today on this uh, because we dove so deeply last week. But basically, on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And he's welcomed by this huge crowd of people. Like there's all of these people that are welcoming him. He's a rock star. And people are tearing off palm branches and they're waving them in the air and they're placing them on a road and they're laying down their coats and they're celebrating and lifting him up. And... When Jesus came in, he he came in with triumph of a victory. And this kind of parade, this kind of entry was only given to people who were going to be honored in great ways. Roman generals, when they would have this kind of entry, they would come in on a war horse. And there would be flowers that were decorated all around them. And they would have a wreath around their head. And people would know that... As they came in, that there was victory, there was triumph. They took some land for our city. And everybody would know that that victory was connected to military power. But when Jesus walks into Jerusalem in that first day with triumph, he does something that's kind of unexpected. The city greets him and they're waving palm branches and they're cheering and they're shouting and they're lifting him up. But Jesus decides that He's not going to come in on a war horse, but he rides in on a donkey. And you're like, a donkey? How can a donkey be for a king? It's something you don't expect. It is, unless you remember that 500 years before that, there was a prophecy, there was a prediction that stated that Jesus would come... And when Jesus came, this is what would happen. And God gave this to a prophet, a pastor, 500 years before Jesus even came on the scene. And this is what God said. Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a what? A donkey. Even on a donkey's call. So this prophecy was fulfilled that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But he didn't come as a military hero on a war horse. But he came on a humble donkey. And he doesn't come one as military force. But he comes as one who will be a servant. And he shows that as he rides in on a donkey. Now... Each of the accounts that we're going to look at for each day 
is not just written from a historical perspective, folks, but it's written to you and me as well. That I believe that God wants to say something to us in each of these writings. What is this story for us? What does the story mean? How do we respond to each of these? So on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in in lowliness on a donkey. And not as a dictatorial leader who's going to beat people down with religious law. But he comes in as a humble servant riding on a donkey. And I think our response should be that of servanthood. You see, we as Christians, we're called to see our leadership through servanthood. We are to be servant leaders. Not people who pick up a Bible and beat somebody down on the head, but people who open the Word and say, now I'll live my life, what the Word says. I will serve others. And our Lord comes on that First Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey, and it must have astonished everybody because they thought, no, 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 he, he's going to be the military leader who will overthrow Rome. And this is what Jesus said, I don't want just one piece of the pie, which is Rome. I want the whole world, and I'm going to turn it upside down. That was Palm Sunday. Monday, confrontation. Confrontation. What happens the next day is that Jesus wakes up in the morning and they, they go off to a, a town called Bethany, which is about uh, a mile and a half away, and they spend the night there. And when they wake up that morning, Jesus says, hey, let's go back to Jerusalem. And the glorious temple is, from a distance, this magnificent architectural structure. And it's a holy place. It's the place where God dwells. But as Jesus gets to the temple and he walks inside, he discovers that it's been turned into a flea market. And it's like there's this auction that's going on. And there's this intricate banking system. And animals are all over the place. And people are buying and selling. And they're making sacrifices. Also, what happens on this particular day is that there is an annual tax that people have to pay. Uh, I hate to burst your bubble, but in two days, just in case you were wondering, uh, is April 15th. And um, you might want to be prepared. Just, just saying, okay? But they have this tax. They have to bring this annual tax. Just like we'll experience in a couple of days, they have to bring this tax. The only problem is that they don't want the coins from your little region. They want temple money. And then for you to be able to buy anything, you've got to exchange your money for the temple money. Now, for those of you who've ever traveled overseas before, when you have to exchange money with somebody, who wins? Who? They do. The money changer wins every single time. You don't win. And so Jesus walks in. He sees these money changers everywhere. There are animals everywhere. There's this banking system going on. And he gets mad. 
Some of you are like, I thought Jesus never got mad. No, Jesus got mad. Jesus got angry. In fact, he's ticked off. Now, let me make it personal for you. Let's say you go to your parents' house one day. And there's a whole bunch of people up in your parents' house. And they're spilling stuff on the carpet. They're tearing stuff in the walls. They're making your parents' house a mess. You going to do anything about it? Some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, I don't really like my parents anyways. (laughs) I know some of you. We're just keeping it real up in here. No, but for most of us, if something was, you would be irate. And Jesus was. Jesus said, this isn't happening to my father's house. And immediately, he begins to knock over furniture. He chases out all the animals. One scripture says he got a whip out. He throws the money out. He throws the money changers out. I mean, he's saying, this is my father's house and you've made it a mess. He's like, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a flea market. Then Jesus turns his head and he notices something else. He looks over, he's like, what is this? And in the temple, what they had done is they had built this wall. It was called the dividing wall. It stood about this high. And what this wall basically said was if you are a Gentile, in other words, a non-Jew, so only Jews, if you're anything but a Jew, you are not allowed beyond this wall. It's like they had this big sign up that says, no non-Jews allowed. And if you cross this wall, you're going to die. And Jesus says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. My father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. For everyone, even the Gentiles. Well, as you can imagine, Jesus is not very happy. But guess who else isn't very happy? All the religious leaders, right? They're like, dude, you're messing up our system. You're messing up our banking system. For them, religion had become a business. This temple had simply become an economic production place. And Jesus is irritated. And he's had it. And he stops it. And he's not happy. And Jesus says, this place of worship is to be a place that blesses all the nations. Period. So what does this mean for us on Monday? It means, folks, that whenever the church excludes anyone, any culture, any race, any ethnic group, any other language, whichever, whenever the church excludes anyone, Jesus is not happy. And so here at the jar, in the very early days, we had this response And our response was this, that everyone belongs. Because that's what Jesus said. Everyone, everyone belongs. Whoever you are, whatever your race, whatever your culture, you are welcome here at the jar. And here's another side of it. No matter how much you bring, 
We have some people that bring thousands. We have some people that bring pennies. Whatever you bring, you're welcome here. Tuesday, anointing. Now, we can't be exactly sure that this happens on Tuesday. We just know that it happens in the middle of the week. We're not sure. But Tuesday is a good day for us to think about it. Jesus is back with some of his friends in Bethany. Again, it's about a mile and a half walk. And he's back with his friends. And they realize that what Jesus just did has created conflict. Like what he just did is not making any brownie points for any of the religious leaders. And they're ticked and they're mad and they're talking death for him already. And they know it's going to cost his life. And they realize that the mission that he has to get all the way to the cross is very, very hard. And they just simply want to say, hey, we got your back. We are there for you. Now, two of his closest friends were sisters. One was named Mary and the other one was named Martha. And they're close friends to Jesus. Now, this is the really cool thing about Jesus. Most rabbis and teachers of that day looked down upon women. Women would have never been a part of their team. They were looked upon as second-class citizens. But when Jesus came, Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not the way it is with my kingdom. Every woman is invited to be a part to be leaders on my team. And so one of these sisters, Mary, does something that is pretty unusual, unexpected. At this gathering of friends, all of a sudden, she walks away from the crowd and she gets a vial of perfume and she brings it To Jesus, to anoint him, to place it on him. Now, the scripture tells us that this type of perfume was called nard. Now, for you in the 21st century, you know, nard, that doesn't mean anything. But nard was an expensive perfume. And nard smells like grandiolus. Okay? Not grandiolus. Glad I tried this five times this week and I screwed it up every time. Gladiolas. Okay, gladiolas. I don't know what the heck I just said. That's not a flower, just by the way, okay? I'm not a flower person, so I'm doing the best I can, okay? Gladiolas. And uh, they come from the Iris family, and it smells better than Eternity by Calvin Klein, okay? I mean, it makes that smell like pond water. You know what I mean? But this is good stuff. Now, just the stereotype. Where does the best perfume come from in the world? France. Les Français, right? Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest, right? And now this is what's a kicker. In the ancient world, the worst perfume in the world, guess where it came from? France. Now, the best perfume came from India. And so Mary 
brings us. Now, Mary couldn't have afforded this perfume by herself. So you know what she had to do? She had to go in their little village and take a little, you know, can and get some donations. Everybody in the village gave money so that she could buy this. And so she brings it and she places the perfume on his feet and on his head and on his hands and on his body. And Jesus says, this is good. You see, there are a lot of people around there who are like, this isn't good. This is a waste of our money. He said, no, 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 this is good. And then he said this. She poured perfume on my body to prepare it ahead of time for burial. See, folks, nard was a burial spice. It's extremely expensive, but it's more than just a personal gift. It's a gift that other people now are saying, we are giving this to you. We have your back. You know, folks, that's why you need to come to church. Because when you go through Monday through Saturday, there are a lot of people that don't care about your back. There are people here, we care about you. We want to do life deeply together with you. You will not walk alone. No one stands alone. But the sad thing is, for Jesus, just a few, day later, a few days later when he gets to the cross, there's only one disciple there and his mom. And then it tells us that there was two or three women that were crying from a distance. Nobody had his back. But I was thinking about it this week. Jesus is tortured. He's beaten. He gets to the cross. They stripped him naked. And the only thing that he has of worthly value is perfume that was placed upon him by his friend, Mary Magdalene. And I was just thinking about, you know, he's going through all this torture, all this pain. We'll talk about it here in just a second. And he smells one thing that maybe there's one person that would be there for him. So what does this say to you and me? What's our, what's our response on Monday? It's this. No price or no expense is too high when it comes to blessing Jesus. Now, I know many of you are at different places on the spiritual spectrum. Some of you are just connecting with God. You're trying to figure it out. Or maybe you've gone three steps forward and you've gone two steps back and you're there. Or maybe you've matured in the faith and you've been finding him. But wherever you're at, folks, what is it this week that you can give as a blessing? Because no price, no expense is too high for the one who gave you his very life. Nard was expensive. Mary gave what she had. Wednesday, teaching. Teaching. Like I said, Jesus was surrounded by crowds all the time, both inside the temple and outside the temple. Every time he walked around, it was like Bono or Beyonce. You know what I mean? Like when they even say, we're going to have a concert, they just sell out. Because everybody wants to go. The crowd wants to be there. And everyone's there. And crowds are all around Jesus. It would kind of be like this. Let's say that, if you can, if you can imagine 
uh, a teacher coming to this setting, which is right outside our door at Cannon Commons. And let's say that this person came from a distance. Let's say Kentucky. Okay? I mean, Kentucky's got nice people, right? Some of you are not so sure, right? We'll pick another state then. Tennessee, I don't care. Now, see, we've got some that are like Kentucky fans here. But whoever you, you know, that person comes. And they come and they just sit there. And pretty soon, they're not sitting by themselves, but a few other people come, then a few others. And pretty soon, there's like 4,000 people. And they're camping out on that ground. And pretty soon, they say, there's a religious leader there. Now, I'd love to say that I have no pride in my life and I would be over there going, great job, way to go, buddy. You know, bring people to God. But I have a feeling that some of the pastors here downtown at the Jar, the Bridge, Commonway, uh, the Baptist, First Baptist, uh, High Street, all of those pastors might start thinking, hey, what's up with this? And why is he taking some of our people's? Well, this is what's happening. Jesus comes into town and like all these people are flocking, both in the temple and outside. And the authorities in the temple, they know he's a popular teacher. And so they're like, hey, let's test him. And so they all go around. They're like, "Okay, who's going to do it? And finally, one guy says, I'll do it. Now, this is what's interesting. When it came to uh, religious leaders, Jesus had no problem being confrontational. He would confront them many times. Now, when it came to uh, people in the crowd who were just trying to grow closer to God, he was patient and compassionate. So finally, one of the teachers walks up to him and says, what do you think is the most important law in the Bible? Now, what's interesting about that is that you think, oh, well, maybe it's just like the Ten Commandments. No, 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 no. Once we got the Ten Commandments, then Jewish religious leaders over time added more and more and more and more until all of a sudden the law just weighed people down. Nobody could fulfill the law. In fact, there were 613 laws that if you were a holy Jew that you would fulfill, you'd obey. And so this guy comes up and he goes, hey, which of these is the most important? And Jesus has a quick response. He reaches immediately back into the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, 5. And let's read this out loud together. Let's read it out loud. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the reason he recited this is because two times every single day, Jews would pray these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's the first thing. And I'm sure the religious leaders at that point, they were satisfied. They're like, oh, okay. But then Jesus goes on. He goes, oh, by the way, I have a second one I want to give to you. Aren't preachers like that all the time? Like you finally get to the point where you think he's wrapping up. And then all of a sudden he says, and one more thing, right? Well, Jesus said that. He said, hey, one more thing. Jesus reaches back again into Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verses 18. And he said, these are the two most important. Let's read this out loud together. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So Jesus said out of everything that you could do, out of all of the laws, out of all the commandments, these two are the most important. Love God and love people. Now the problem is, is that these religious people are like, that's too easy. Come on, there's 611 left. That is way too easy, Jesus. Can't you just hear him saying something like, Jesus, shouldn't they have to take a few classes? Like, shouldn't they take a few Bible classes first? Or maybe they need to, you know, go ahead and, uh, you know, get a couple religious books. I mean, you know, hey, at least they should memorize like five or six scriptures before they're in, you know. These are important laws, Jesus. But instead, Jesus does something scandalous. He says, no. Just love God. Love your neighbor. And what's our response? Well, our response should be the response of the Nike slogan. Just do it. We just do it. We love God with all that we are. And then we love God. People, our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, even our enemies. And folks, it's not complicated. These were some of Jesus' last words to the world. And they're as true for us today as they were when he shared them in Jerusalem. Thursday, supper. Supper. Now, what happened typically on Thursday of a Holy Week is Passover. Passover is a Jewish holiday, and on that day, Jewish families would bring an animal to the temple to be sacrificed. And it couldn't be like any animal. It couldn't have blemishes. It couldn't have, you know, it had to be the best that you had. So, you know, you couldn't take the run of the litter and be like, ah, we'll give this. No, it had to be the best. And uh, it had to be one year old, and it should be a lamb, but if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could give a sacrifice of a goat. If you couldn't afford a goat, you could actually do a pigeon. Jesus' parents were so poor that that's what they gave when they would go to the temple. And basically, what the house would do on Passover, though, is that they would think of all the sins that they committed, and they would place them on that animal whatever sins in the household were. And then usually the father and the oldest son would take this lamb to the temple and they would offer it to the priest. They had to be concerned about crowd control. Not everybody could come to Jerusalem. There'd be way too many people. So you only took like the head of the household and maybe the oldest son. And scholars believe that there were multiple sacrificial altars all over and There were thousands of lambs that were being sacrificed. And so you would take your lamb to the priest and the priest would take the lamb and then the priest would cut the lamb's neck right open. I know it doesn't sound good. It's not like Chick-fil-A, right? It doesn't happen that way there. But the priest would cut the throat and then when the lamb was finally dead, they would put the lamb up on the wall. And they would shear the lamb. They'd get all of the, all of the fur from the lamb and then they would give it. And then they would go inside the lamb and take all the inyards and the guts and everything. And that's what the priests got to keep. 
So like the pastor's got that. Now I was thinking about it this week. You don't have to get that for me, but if you want to get a Texas Roadhouse gift certificate, like I'm fine with that. You know what I mean? But this was for their barbecue, I guess. I don't know about that. But that's what they got. And after they did that, then they would take the carcass, everything that's left, and they would put it over your shoulder, and then you would take your lamb, and you would walk back home, and then you would prepare that lamb, and everyone would sit around, and they would eat it that evening. Now, on Thursday of this week, Jesus had already located a room in Jerusalem, and Jesus and the disciples are going to celebrate the Passover. And they come into this room, and the Passover meal is a long meal, hours. There's scriptures that are read, there's ceremonies. It's not just a, you know, fast food kind of thing. This is a long, extended meal. But Jesus does two things in that upper room that surprise his followers. The first one is that when they arrive, Jesus is standing at the door with a basin of water. And he's on his knees, and they walk in, and he's there. Now, For you and I, that might sound weird, but for this culture, for the teacher to do that was really weird. You see, foot washing was a part of that culture. Because in that culture, everyone walked either barefoot or they walked with sandals. But there was dust and the roads were dirty. And the roads were dumping grounds. So if an animal goes down the road and they leave a little present, there's nobody, you know, from the sanitation department coming out there going, okay, we'll pick it up. It just stays there. And people walk through it and in it and out of it. And then if you're in your home and you've cleaned some things, you just throw the water out. Everything's in the street. So when people are walking, their feet, their feet are caked with all kinds of stuff. Or if they have sandals, they're dusty and there's stuff everywhere. It'd be similar to us in our culture that when we come to someone's house, we take their coat. But this was the thing. Guess whose job it was to wash feet? The lowest slave in the house. The lowest person in the household. And when they walk in, they're shocked because Jesus, their teacher, their master, has this basin of water and he washes every single one of their feet. And we know he would want to do that because in Jesus' day too, they didn't have tables where everyone had a chair and you sat around it. But what it was was that... uh, you would recline back and then your feet would be up near the table. So you didn't want all that stuff, you know, up at the table. Now, he shows them, this is what a servant does. This is what you're going to do. Now, the second thing he does is a little, needs a little bit more explanation. Let me detour here just for a second. So the, the father and the oldest son, they bring the lamb, but all the sins of the household have been placed on that land. But the problem is, only the two of them have actually come to the altar for the sacrifice. So it appears that only the two of them are forgiven of their sins. But the way the law was, was that, no, 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 no. We don't need everybody here. You just take it back. And when you actually ate of the lamb, you became a partner at the altar. Does that make sense? So you actually became a part of that altar experience. Your sins, as you partook of the meal, you became a partner at the altar. You join yourself with the sacrifice that was that day. And it benefits, all the benefits from the lamb sacrifice, you get that as well. 
So this is what's interesting. In the middle of this whole meal, this is what Jesus does. He takes a piece of bread and he lifts it up and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And then he pours a cup of wine and he says this. This wine is my blood poured out for you in this new covenant. In other words, he's saying every time that you eat this bread and you drink this cup, even though you're not going to experience the sacrifice, you weren't there to see it happen. Every time that you eat the bread and you drink this, you become a partner with me at the altar. And just think about that, folks. On that Thursday, there are thousands of lambs that are being killed all over the place as sacrifices. And suddenly, Jesus, in this upper room, he says, I'm going to be sacrificed. I'm going to the cross. I am going to be the sacrificial, the ultimate, the final sacrificial lamb. You know, it's an amazing thing to me. Each time that we share communion, it's a mystery to me. I don't fully comprehend or understand what is it that Jesus did for me. I'm not worthy of being able to share in that. And he simply says, it's my free gift. The cross is at the center of who you are. And secondly, Jesus says, you are to wash other people's feet. In fact, he said this to the disciples after he did it. He said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also, what? Wash one another's feet. This was the last instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples. And I think it was almost like he was giving them a little test, a spiritual maturity kind of test, saying these are the questions of the test, but they're not just for you, but they're going to be for everybody for all time. And here they are. Do you love God with your whole heart? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? And are you willing to give your one and only life to the service of the world? And this is what I'm convinced of, folks, that if all Christians throughout the world would say yes to these three questions, we would change the planet. Don't you think? Change the planet. Friday, crucifixion. Now, on Thursday night, Early Friday morning, what Jews would do on Passover is that they would just spend the entire night and they would pray. They'd pray all night long. And they would give offerings to the poor during this time. And so Jesus moves to that late night and he goes to the east side of the city to this garden called Gethsemane. And Jesus plans that he's going to be there for the entire night. He's going to pray all night long. But his prayer gets interrupted. All of a sudden, he sees one of his best friends. Somebody who he trusted. He walks in. His name's Judas. And he sold the master out for 30 pieces of silver. 
And he comes up and he gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek. And that was the sign for the Roman soldiers and the Jewish soldiers to know, take him. And they arrest him. And then what happens? You know, there's a ruckus that kind of comes and Peter pulls out a knife and he cuts off the ear of one of these guys. And Jesus doesn't just go, wow, you know, sorry, dude. Jesus, his own enemy, he reaches down, he picks the ear up, he puts it, puts it back on his side of his head and he heals him in that moment. But they arrest him. They take him away. It's Friday, early, early morning. He's taken to the home of the chief priest, a guy by the name of Caiaphas, the high chief priest. And Caiaphas, along with all of his friends, they start interrogating Jesus. And they determine finally that the charge against him is going to be blasphemy because he has claimed that he is the son of God. And so he must die. Jesus is locked away that night. Nine o'clock in the morning, they get all the rest of them together. They're like, are we in consensus? He has said this. Yes, this man must die. Only one problem. Caiaphas can't kill anybody. (laughs) No Jewish leader at that day had the power or the authority to have capital punishment. But they know somebody that does. And it's the governor, it's the leader of all of Jerusalem. His name is Pilate. And we'll send him there. And Pilate at first has this long conversation with Jesus. And he knows in his heart, I think he is innocent. But the pressures of the people around him become so great that finally he's like, no, 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 no. I can't do it. And he gives him the death penalty. And they go out and they beat him and they whip him and they flog him. Now, some of you don't know what flogging is, so I want to explain it to you. Flogging is where they take a whip and at the end of the whip, they would put rocks and other sharp objects so that when they whip the person, it actually went into their skin so that when they pulled it back, you would actually skin the person alive. And this is what they found, that if you gave a person 40 lashes, the person would die. You know how many Jesus took? 39. He took every penalty there was. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the cross today, except to say it was the most gruesome form of death you can imagine. The most painful, the most humiliating. Because this is what they did. They went to a side hill and they put up the crucified people so that everybody in the city could look and see. And it was Roman propaganda that basically said, if you behave this way, if you're a follower of this man, you will have the exact same thing happen to you. And it was the pinnacle of scare tactics. And so the Bible tells us that once Jesus got to the cross, finally, he only said seven sentences. That's it. Seven sentences. They've been studied. They're memorable. But there's one that this week as I was looking at it, it just impacted me so much. Jesus from the cross, he looks down and he says this, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. 
Now, why do you think he would say that? This is what I was thinking this week. Because earlier on in his teaching ministry, this is what he said. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus said, I will practice that even at the cross. So this Friday, we'll grieve his death. You know, we call it Good Friday. Because it's a good Friday for us. Jesus took everything on himself. But for Jesus, folks, it was a black Friday. It was a dark Friday. It was not a Friday that anyone in this world has ever experienced before. But what's it mean for you and me? How do we respond? And I was thinking about it. Maybe on Friday, we should practice forgive your enemies. Is there someone you're holding a grudge against? Is there someone who's hurt you? Is there some pain in your life? Who is your enemy? Take the step this Friday. Forgive that person. Saturday, death. Friday, Sunday, or on Friday, sundown comes. And here's what happens. The women that were close to Jesus, they come, his body is removed and it's taken off the cross. And they take his body and they find out that there is a person in their group who is a very wealthy person. He doesn't want everybody to know that he's doing this, but he lets them know, I have a tomb for Jesus' body to be placed because Jesus couldn't afford it himself. And this guy named Joseph gives them this tomb. And these ladies, they take this body. And they realize they don't have enough time to prepare the body properly because sundown is coming. And so they do the best that they can. And they finally wrap it up and they decide, hey, we will go ahead and we'll leave it in the tomb. Because we can't work on the Sabbath and we'll just come back early Sunday morning and we'll finish preparing it. So on Saturday, the tomb is quiet. But the disciples are mourning. They cannot believe that their great teacher is dead. So on Saturday, what about us? What should our response be? Well, I think it should be a day of mourning. A day of mourning. For the last 10 years on Holy Week, I practice, uh, it's become a spiritual discipline for me. I get the movie The Passion of the Christ, and I break it up into segments so that I don't watch the whole thing, but I watch a little bit of each segment through the week. That on Friday night then, I get to him crucified and he dies. And then I wake up on Saturday morning. And I watch as they, they take his body off the cross. And they get ready to prepare it. And I try on that particular day to be quiet. I know some people... They'll choose not to go to the store that day. Other people, they'll choose to not watch television. Or maybe they'll choose not to listen to music. But that's what I do. 
And I just commit myself on that day to be quiet. And I mourn. You know what I'm talking about? Like at the funeral of your mom or your dad or a brother or sister, I spend that time and I mourn. And this week, I've committed, and I've already started this morning, that I don't want to get to Easter without preparing myself for it. And so I read this morning, Matthew 21, 1 to 11. And tomorrow when I do my time, I'll do Monday, and then I'll do Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Because I don't want to get to Easter too soon so that I don't experience and understand what my Lord did for me. And so I'll take the time to do that this week. And I just was thinking that it would be pastoral malpractice for me not to challenge you guys to do the same thing. I'm in. Like, I'm in. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read the Scripture. I'm going to pray. I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to try to be obedient to what He says. And I'm going to practice it each day up to Easter. And the thing that I want to ask you this morning is this is not a commitment between you and men, but this is a commitment between you and your God. Are you with me? And so if you are, just raise your hand. I'm going to do it this week. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes, but I'm going to do it this week. Let's stand. You see, folks, preparation shapes celebration. And sometimes many of us get to Easter way too early. And I'm just convinced that if you'll do this this week, every day, just carve out 10 or 15 minutes, that if you do that, when we get to Easter, it'll be the most meaningful Easter you've ever experienced in your life. And you'll celebrate it in a way that you've never celebrated it before. Why? Because you prepared yourself. And what a great Easter it's going to be. Let's pray. God, you saw the hands that went up today. You know the intentions of our hearts. God, help us this week to get to the cross. That wonderful cross. So that we might be able to celebrate in even a greater way. Easter Sunday and your amazing resurrection. I pray this, God, for each person in this gym today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.